Ducks Unlimited invites you to the third annual Ducks Unlimited Expo presented by Purina Pro Plan at Texas Motor Speedway, May 5th through 7th. Watch the premier canine performance athletes of the dog world competing in the incredible dog challenge, test drive a new ATV, or visit the live fire shooting ranges. DUX, the show for everything outdoors. To learn more, visit duckexpo.com. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born in war, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists. Think about that. Targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next-generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. All right, let's roll. Cable Smith, welcome everybody into episode 674 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by the good folks over at Mossberg Firearms. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. Appreciate you dropping by as we've got a good one lined up for you here today, and I'll tell you all about it momentarily. But first, uh, crazy week at the old Smith house. It's a nasty stomach bug rolled through the family. It started with me on Monday, and it was more of the uh, posterior thing for me for like 36 hours, and then uh, I was feeling better by Wednesday. But it came with body aches and fever and just nausea. I never did throw up, but... On Wednesday afternoon, the school calls and like, hey, um, one of the twins is sick. So Aaron runs up there. And at this time, I'm leaving to go look at a new truck. And uh, she she calls me. She's like, well, all hell broke loose because it wasn't just one of the twins. It was both of them. They're not in the same class. And yet they puked literally at the school five minutes apart. I don't I think it's just this twin thing. But. God bless their hearts. Frankie and Stella each lost their lunch. One of them in the bathroom, the other one in the hallway, different parts of the school, basically at the same time. (laughs) So then they spent the next uh, 24 hours laid up on the couch. Then that night, Aaron is hugging the toilet. And then, uh, and I'm, I'm feeling better. So I have now, well, I went and got a new truck. I'll tell you more about that. Uh, But I'm making dinner for Henry since we've kind of swapped as she was taking care of me. Now I'm taking care of everyone and I'm making him this chunky. It's like a Campbell's chunky soup or whatever pot roast. And it's this orange color. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, let's revisit this. This is not a good idea. I've, I've parented long enough to know that if you get sick, I'm going to be cleaning this stuff up out of the carpet in your room. So 
I did a 180 and threw that out and made him some bland ramen with a piece of toast, <laughs> which he was fine with. Uh, so luckily, he is the only one that hasn't succumbed to the stomach bug, which apparently is going around. Um, hopefully, your family hasn't been hit by it. But uh, yeah. And uh, and on Wednesday, I'm feeling better. And so I have had enough of the 2018 Chevy Silverado in the last two years. I've had to spend over $10,000 just to keep it running on the way back from hunting camp in the 2021 season. The passenger side differential just goes out. Truck won't drive. Had to have it towed two and a half hours back to DFW. That cost me four grand. And then uh, this past November, the transmission went out at 75,000 miles on a 2018 truck. So, yeah, not happy and just decided, you know what? I'm getting away from this thing. So I got, I switched over. I am now Team Ford, y'all. That is right. Got an F 150. Uh, I think it had 30,000 miles, less miles than my Chevy and, uh, got into it for the retail market on used trucks is insane by the way, because I got four or $5,000 less for my, for my Silverado than what I paid for it with, uh, almost brand new in 2019. It's crazy. I got $32,000 for a used pickup with 85,000 miles on it. Mind-blowing. But uh but yeah, I looked I shopped around for the past week and we'll see what this uh this F150 with the 5.0 V8 does. High expectations. Hopefully it can't be any worse than the last one. Maybe I just got a lemon. So anyway, I'm now team Ford. Sorry to all those Chevy guys, but I have I am a flip-flopper. Uh What's going on today? Let me tell you. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up bold Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And we will be joined by outdoor writer. Well, she's written one book. Uh, But Sue Tidwell, author of Cries of the Savannah, will be here for the duration. And it's going to be a fun conversation. And here's why. Sue is not a hunter. No, she is not. But she has observed some Western big game hunts with her husband, uh, elk and mule deer, so on and so forth. Then he wanted to go to Africa for his once-in-a-lifetime bucket list trip. And Sue, like so many Americans, had this predisposition on what she thought African hunting was really like, and specifically trophy hunting. And, And And, of course, you and I know that that term trophy hunting has been turned into something utterly detestable, which is not what the term means at all. Uh, But when you talk about hunting megafauna species that people, for whatever reason, whether it's Disney or a stuffed animal or it could be a number of things, but they're emotionally attached to it, well, then it's problematic for for their psyche. And so she will explain how being there firsthand and watching these animals get killed actually affected her. And, or if it did, or if she, through this experience, began to understand and appreciate what hunting actually does in Africa. It's no different than North America. So Cries of the Savannah, great book. I read the whole thing. 
uh, Sue Tidwell will join us. And I actually met Sue at the SCI convention in uh, Nashville uh, maybe six weeks or so ago. So uh, looking forward to having her join us today. Let's do a giveaway. I've got, because so many people wanted to win the Boar Light from All Seasons last week, we're going to give away another one. That's right. We've got an All Seasons Feeders Boar Light. You hang it on your feeder leg. It lights up at dusk. And then when things approach the feeder, it actually increases the light output. Uh, so you can theoretically, I mean, it's designed for hogs. Uh, but yeah, you can shoot them easily past 100 yards. That's how much light it's putting out. Check it out. It's the boar light, and we're going to give one away. All you need to do is email the word boar, that's boar, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and you are entered into today's boar light giveaway. And I think they retail for 129 bucks. So cool prize there from All Seasons Feeders. We're going to take a break. Up next, Sue Tidwell joins us on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Every time I'm away from you, Feels like a sin Till I pass the Rio Or drive around The Big Bend Seagulls are high in the sky Every time I think of you You're mine I look at my footprints In the sand Next to the Rio Time to tell you about Protect products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, they don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. It's that time of the year where you might want to try to kick off a new year with a fitness journey. Cryo and More has all your holistic healing needs with cold therapy, heat therapy, and pressure therapy, which shortcuts the time you have to spend recovering from your workout or minimize the muscle soreness you feel from physical activity. Cryo Skin is a body hack that speeds up the death cycle of the fat cells using non-invasive technology that uses heat and cold to eliminate fat cells. Your greatest wealth is your health. Visit cryoandmore.com or head over to the location off of Virginia Parkway in McKinney. Well, I heard you've been running with a wilder cast Playing hard and living fast and For a while you had a blast You were feeling ten feet tall You're gonna be alright Well, Turnpike Troubadours bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for being here today as uh, we're about to check in with Sue Tidwell and really dive into her, I guess you could call it a transformation from a non-hunter, even more of an anti-hunting leaning mindset when it comes to hunting in Africa to where she is today after having experienced it firsthand. So interesting stuff coming up. This segment brought to you by SCI. 
if you're passionate about conservation initiatives in North America, but also across the globe, which you should be, um, then you need to become a member of SCI because they put their money where their mouth is here domestically and internationally. For more info, head over to safariclub.org. We'd love to have you. With that being said, let's bring her on right now. She's a wonderful storyteller and the author of Cries of the Savannah, Sue Tidwell. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's good to be here. Absolutely. And it was nice to meet you in Nashville at the SCI convention, uh, I think it was over a cocktail after the first day. Uh, and I'd already started reading your book by then, uh, but have had the chance to finish it up since. Yeah, it's nice to put a face and actually get to meet people in person. I love that part of it. After you kind of feel like your friends on social media and then you get to see them in person, it's really nice. So had you been to SCI previously? Yeah, my husband and my, that's my fa- my husband's favorite thing to do. So we have been going to that for years, um, even even before we went to Africa. So you know, a couple of years I guess before we went to Africa. But yeah, we we never miss an SCI. <laughs> okay, awesome. What did you think of Nashville? I, personally, I thought it was a great switch from from Vegas to to Nashville. I loved it. I am. I hate to say this, but I'm so over Vegas. Um, yeah. It's just, I mean, not the convention itself so much, but just the this the town itself. I, I much preferred Nashville. Hundred percent agree. Vegas is dirty, and it is what you expect it to be. It's, I mean, yeah. it's more about Vegas than than the convention where Nashville offered. I mean, so many great restaurants and um, you know live music and everything just within walking distance, and it That's- was clean. Yes, and I love that you could walk everything. Vegas, everything is so big now. I mean, it's a mile just to get across one casino. So, yeah, I love that that there was so much there in in Nashville and a lot of good barbecue. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Uh, So, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. You grew up around hunting but didn't actively participate. Yeah, I grew up in a hunting family. I have four brothers and a dad, and they all hunted. And to be honest, when I was young, I was just thrilled to have them out of the house. So, you know, I was like doing a little jig every time they left to go hunting, and I had the whole house to myself for the day because I was the oldest. But um, So I grew up eating uh, deer meat and all that. That was just a staple in our house. But um, Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, yeah, rural Pennsylvania, a small town. And um, But I never actually hunted myself. And then when I met my husband, I actually started going hunting with him. And even when my brothers hunted, I never, I never actually saw the deer till they were hanging in the garage and processed, you know? So um, it was really different going with my husband mm-hmm. and being there for the whole thing. So I saw it from a whole different aspect. And so you, so t- talk about how you and uh, Rick actually met, you know, you were working in a, like, a, I think a, a steel mill back home. Well, I was a, I know, but I don't know how you guys connected and you ended up moving to Idaho. Well, I worked in a steel mill in Pennsylvania for 10 years, um, just like a steel mill Pennsylvania town and hard hat boots, the whole works, you know, the geeky safety glasses. And then I went through a divorce and was just ready for a change. So my sister was working in Alaska and I went up there on vacation and I just said, this is the change I need. So I quit my job and moved to Alaska and applied Hmm. for, um, ended up doing my dream job of being a flight attendant. So I went from being a steel mill worker to a flight attendant. 
um, in just a little small airline in Alaska. And my husband's a pilot. So anyway, <laughs> um, uh. we didn't actually meet at work, but we met at the AK Corral, um, a little country bar up there. And he was out with some of the guys. I was out with some of the girls and kind of the rest is history. So right on. Okay. So oh, then y'all, we moved y'all to, live in Idaho yes. now. Yeah, he grew up in Idaho. So he's a ranch, you know, small time ranch boy from Idaho. And we met in Alaska, but um, when his daughter was 15, um, we moved to Idaho to get custody of, of her. She wanted to come live on the ranch. So um, mm. we gave up Alaska. He kept working up there, commuting back and forth. I had to give up my job to be with her every day. And um, then he commuted back and forth for several years. Okay. So despite growing up, I mean, in Pennsylvania is a state that's so enriched in whitetail tradition. Um, I, I, I know, like you said, you were the oldest of, you had four younger brothers and you were happy to have them out of the house. So you never, you never actually went on the hunting trips yourself until you started going, uh, I guess, backcountry elk hunting with Rick. Yeah. Yeah. The first, and actually before, before we did the elk hunting, I went with him caribou hunting in Alaska. That was my very first uh-huh. time. And it was um, one that will be <laughs> in my memory forever because, uh, well, there was this hike that I had always wanted to do. And I got snowed out one time and couldn't do it. Anyway, in the little brochure, it said that's where the Kenai caribou hung out. And that's the tag he had. So I talked mm-hmm. him into going there. And we went there. We took the four-hour drive, all this hike. We get up to the top of this mountain as far as we can go and get the tent halfway set up in this horrible windstorm. And darn it, that Kenai, the elusive Kenai caribou herd didn't come right up the valley where we had just come from. So we had, didn't even have our tent up. And here comes that caribou herd. Well, one was injured and Rick killed that one to put it out of its misery. And um, But that was the first time I was there for the kill. And uh-huh. I was just, I was just crying and crying and Rick's trying to do his thing. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're just making this so hard. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but you know, but I'd hold a leg while he's doing this and hold a leg while he's cutting this. And it was the first time I was there for the kill and to be a part of the whole, you know, the butchering and processing and everything. But, but at the same time, I found myself, um, just loving the whole experience of it. To watch that herd of caribou come up to the valley um, with the weather whipping. I mean, it's a, it's a day. It would have never happened if I was there on a fair weather hike. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it just wouldn't have happened. It was a miserable day. The wind was whipping. It was close to dark. And we were we got to experience this amazing thing. And so I ended up loving the adventure of it, even though I didn't like, you know, the the kill part, I guess you would say. But, but I understood it, but uh-huh. it's still still difficult for me. <laughs> so, and you've since been on, you know, quite a few, I imagine every year, backcountry elk hunts. Uh, I don't know if he hunts mule deer as well in Idaho, but um, you, accompany, you accompany him on those. You, you've seen other things now at this point get shot. Oh, yeah. I, processed. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm. I, it's still a little tough sometimes, and it always depends on the situation. Every situation is a little different, but I totally understand and I totally support what it does for conservation and, and you know, all the meat is eaten and all that type of thing. So, and I just love the adventure of it. So I love being in, the, you know, Idaho's backcountry and, um, and uh, yeah, Rick does hunt mule deer too, but, you know, elk is not more so than anything, but um, 
But this year, like for instance, we rode horseback 15 miles to this high meadow camp and then the wolves moved in. You know, we could hear those wolves, right? We had a bunch of mules and you could hear the, and like idiots, well, we didn't know we were, they were bugle, you know, bugling. And um, we ended up, we heard, heard this really funny bugle back and we thought, oh, you're right, the, the elk are here. We were so excited that later we figured out he was trying to tell us to shut the flank up because we called the wolves in. And uh, as soon as we those wolves heard us, they were in a far drainage. And for the next three hours, we could hear them moving closer and closer and closer. So that ended that outcome mm-hmm. because there's no way the elk aren't going to talk, you know, when the wolves are there. So anyway, I've but it's still amazing. Wolves, but I've called in other hunters plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. If, them call it in 15 wolves. miles back there. Yeah. Maybe not. Hopefully you're not seeing other hunters, but uh, I certainly have. Yeah. And it's always funny because if you figure out, you know, they're another hunter before they figure out that you're a hunter and you can kind of just mess with them a little bit. I'm not saying do that, but you know, you can really go to town on that bugle and get them fired up and you know, they're coming anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, yeah. yeah. And then they're all yeah, calm when they see you. Times. It's like, oh, you know. But yeah, we don't run into too many people out in that kind of country. But you know, yeah. once in a while. But yeah. Um. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about your book, which I've read here, "Cries of the Savannah." Um. Before we do that, though, you guys go, are going to Tanzania, mm-hmm. and this is Rick's lifelong dream. Had he, he hadn't been to Africa previously, correct? No, he'd never been to Africa. And He'd so, gone to SCI, just never Africa. <laughs> right. And so I want to get into your headspace as you, you, at this point, you'd seen caribou and elk and deer, you know, get shot and you've been there for the kill and you've helped with the processing, but you still had a mental hang up with trophy hunting in a third world, I guess a third world country or, you know, a different continent. Uh, talk about, explain where you were coming from prior to actually going on the safari. What was your, well, your you know, it's kind of, I am, I totally got and understood hunting and support it, but it's so weird. We keep become so emotionally attached to certain animals. And uh-huh. Africa was one of those places where I was emotionally attached. I grew up loving, you know, all those, I don't know if you remember Simba, the white lion, that's probably mm-hmm. before your day. But um, that and Tarzan, I mean, I loved all that stuff. So I was infatuated with those animals and they just seemed different to me than than elk and whitetail, you know, that are so plentiful here. And plus you hear they're endangered, you know, you there's all these misconceptions out there. So I just, and then Rick wanted to hunt a zebra. Well, we live here on a, the corner of his family's ranch where they have 40 horses. So, you know, horses are, you know, they're, work animals and their their friends i mean you know they're not just work animals to them so have you seen anybody uh riding a zebra because i I, you know man has been trying to domesticate those damn striped donkeys for centuries and there's still nobody riding them (laughs) no i I talk about that a little bit in the book because i was amazed to the research but yeah they are not they have caused yeah they're amazing they are not domesticated and that's what rick kept trying to tell me you know And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I trusted my husband and I trusted hunters in general. So I was, as much as I wanted to go to Africa, I was willing to put my, I, what's the word I'm looking for, but 
Yeah, your predisposition on yeah, the, Yes, yeah. I was willing to go. I wanted to experience the opportunity. I just wasn't sure I would be, I wasn't thrilled with some of the animals he was hunting. Yes, and you're not alone in that school of thought. A lot of Americans who seem to be okay with domestic hunting here seem to want to frown upon trophy hunting abroad, especially African megafauna species, which I'm sure are some of those species you weren't thrilled about, Rick, wanting to hunt. We'll get into that after the break because it's going to be baptism by fire. I mean, you're going to have to come to grips with this once it happened. That segment brought to you by Stealth Cam and the DS4K wireless trail camera. You can find it as well as their entire lineup of wireless cellular cameras at StealthCam.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I want a garden with onions, carrots and beans with a couple back issues of field and stream for my white trash paradise. I want to spend my nights drinking Schaefer light and smoking cheap cigarettes. I want a water bed to rest my head and a pit bull for my pet. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Did you know that Orvis has been family-owned since its inception in 1856? Think about that. Uh, They also donate 5% back to protecting nature. Orvis and his customers have raised and donated more than $20 million to protecting nature over the past 25 years. They continue to grow a community of outdoorsmen and women with classes focused on everything from fly fishing to wing shooting and hunting dog handling from basics all the way to advanced. And don't forget about their unique fly fishing and wing shooting trips all over the world. Orvis, proudly American-made fly fishing gear since 1856. Totally cliche. Don't care. Love that tune. The older I get, the more I appreciate cheesy stuff like that. That is uh, Toto Africa, of course. Uh, And we're talking Africa with uh, our friend Sue Tidwell here today, author of Cries of the Savannah. Highly recommend it. Great read. Uh, We'll get back into that conversation momentarily. First, though, this segment brought to you by Armasite. You know, during the month of April only, I can save you 10% on any Armasite optic. That is thermal. That is night vision. That's scopes. That's um, monoculars. That's nods. If you want a pair of uh, night vision nods, yep, this is your chance. 10% off with my promo code Lone Star 10 when you check out at armasite.com. All right. With that being said, Sue, we left off with, you know, you've arrived in Africa and your husband has a list. You know it's on the list and you're okay with some of the animals, but a few of the others, you're like, I don't know why we would hunt that. Is that really necessary? Uh, so which animals were you okay with? And explain why you had this mental hurdle with some of the other species. I knew I'd be able to handle a buffalo and some antelopes because they're kind of like deer and elk. Mm-hmm. 
but it was those certain ones like a zebra, you know, or a leopard. Um, but anyway, so, and I'm not the only one in America. There are so many people that feel like me. They understand merit hunting here, but they don't understand it in places like that. First of all, because there are a lot of misconceptions and they, they are like me. They get emotionally attached to certain animals. So um, I would say yeah, there but I was, are a lot of people like that who are like, yeah, you killed a deer. That's good. You know, you're going to eat it. What, you want to go leopard hunting? What? Why would you do that? You know, like, or why would anyone shoot a striped horse? Well, it's not really a horse. Actually, your pH is probably going to say it's a big pain in the ass to even try to hunt one. <laughs> yeah. is what's really they were say. hard. Yeah. It turned into our nemesis. I mean, yeah. it was so funny because I thought it was going to be like, you know, taking candy from a baby, you know, shooting fish out of a barrel. But it kind of turned out to be our nemesis. We had to go after it like 10 times, hard hunting. It's hard to get close to them. Mm-hmm. It's so it was it was an amazing hunt, and it totally turned my opinion. You know, a lot of Americans, you think we see too much National Geographic. So you think the animals are all just going to sit there while you drive by and just be, you know, like, da-da-da-da-da. It's not like that. In a hunting concession, they're like animals here. They run. So oh, yeah. as soon as they hear the vehicle, they're gone. You have to spy them, then you have to track them or stalk them. So it's it's a huge challenge. It's just nothing like I imagined. And the zebra is a little bit notorious for for screwing up other hunt. Like you're not hunting zebra, but the zebra is now it's a plains species. So some of them there's mountain zebras. There's a bunch of different kinds of zebras. But you know if they're on the plains, they're very wary, and they let everybody else know all the other species the gigs up and and ruin everything for for the hunting party. Uh, yeah, they all hang out. You know, they all have these these animals all have these symbiotic relationships because like the zebra has all three good senses. So some another one might not have good smell or not, you know what I mean? So they all mm-hmm. have their little strengths and wit, wit or weaknesses. So, yeah, it's hard. To, they're definitely can ruin some hunts. <laughs> so Rick shoots the zebra finally after many attempts, failed attempts. Uh, what was that like for you? And and this is one of the first ones in the book. I don't know if it was the first thing he killed, but it, it was towards the beginning of the safari. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like for you walking up on what you had always thought basically was a striped horse? It was weird. I had expected it to be like really, really emotional. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I would just lose it, but I I didn't. I By that time, by the time we had chased it 10 times and already we had been there, maybe three days. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but in Africa, you learn a lot in one day. And so um, it it felt like three weeks already, basically. Mm -hmm. So already I was changing my opinion. And when we saw that zebra, I mean, of course, I felt the, the typical feelings you go through when you see a dead animal, but it didn't hit me any harder than than other wildlife. I, I knew it was a wild animal. I knew it was a good hunt. I knew it was for the better good. So yeah. it was much easier to take. So I have, I've been to South Africa five times. I will be going on trip number six in late May. I have never gotten to the, the darker, uh, less explored, uninhabited regions or, or countries like Tanzania. Uh, it intrigues me. I want to do it someday. What was the, the hunting camp like? And who were the native, I think it was the Maasai people that were. Well, they were near the Maasai. None of our people were. Okay. Our our camp was represented by six different tribes, but none of them were actually Maasai. Okay. But they talked about the Maasai a lot. So we learned a lot about them. Uh-huh. But um, but yeah, it was, um, 
Oh, but like I said, Rick and I thought we were only going to go once in a lifetime. And so he wanted the old time Bush experience. So mm-hmm. we were literally four hours from the nearest village even and 16 hours from Arusha. Um, we had 20. Is? Yeah, that was the biggest airport. So 16 you know? hour drive from the airport. 16 hour drive, but we didn't drive. Yeah. Luckily, we we ended up. At the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, we got to hire this bush plane to take us there mm-hmm. for an hour and a half flight. But after being there, I realized, oh, my gosh, that was money well spent because 16 hours to get there would have been would have been brutal. Plus, I added two days yeah. at each end of your stay. But, yeah, yeah so we did land on a little dirt runs um, runway. Um, then it was another 45 minutes to camp. We had 20, we showed up, there's 21 Tanzanians to take care of four Americans and the camp, it was just, oh, they were just so welcoming. So amazing. So think about that, 21 people to take care (laughs) of four Americans. That is a lot of jobs, right? I'm just like, that doesn't even take into consideration the overall expense of the hunt. That's just, I'm looking at, that's 21 human beings that are surviving because of hunting. Exactly. And they're not, and it's not just them. It took them, they have to tear down camp every year. Mm-hmm. So it took 30 villagers, 30 days to rebuild camp every spring. Plus they have to buy their groceries. I mean, it's just goes and goes and goes. There's just all these offshoots from where this, this money yeah. goes, but yeah, right there at camp itself was 20 and all these families are, you know, supported from them. So yeah, and we thought, you know, I thought, I'll be honest, when we pulled in, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, Rick and I are used to camping. We, we, this is a little overkill. We don't need this many people to take care of us. Well, it's different ball game than here in the States, you know, oh, yeah. and um, we, we did have tents and luckily they were zippered tents. So um, like I said, when I walked in my tent, I about kissed the ground because I was so excited because, you know, elk camps, critters can get under, you know, you put a tarp down and mice and snakes can get in there. Well, that's what I was envisioning for Tanzania. That black mamba was like the thing of my dread. And I'd read that Peter Capstick's book, Death in the Long Grass, before. Uh-huh. So that's not a good idea to do. But when I saw that the no, Zen was No, I recommend tibbered... reading it. Yes, absolutely read that one and read Horn of the Hunter. Read them all. Yeah. Definitely, definitely read them. It puts you on. Um, but you're laying in that tent. That's all you can think of is some of the stories from that book. And you're just going, oh, my goodness. But um, but yeah, so I was happy to see a zip tent where snakes couldn't get in and, you know, me wake up with one on my chest or something. But um, but yeah, so then we had um, they built like shade shelters over each tent to get offer some shade. Um, all the mess, like the messy, with the, which is the dining hut and everything was built of grass huts and logs, basically. So um, it was very primitive. Um, everything all runs water, off a generator? Yeah, they had a generator that they turned on for a couple hours every day to keep a little ice maker so we could have ice in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had solar power. So at night they would turn on lights. So we'd have a little solar light in our tent. Um, they had some radios running on solar power. And all of our water came from a hole in the ground, like three foot hole in the ground. And um, it would, because it was the dry season. So they would dig into the riverbed. We were right on the edge of the riverbed. They would dig into the riverbed and water would seep up through into that hole. They would scoop it out bucket by bucket, then go dump it into a big tank, heat it over fire. And then they would, like for us to have a shower, they would carry it up a scaffolding, which, which had a big tank above our tent so that we could have hot water. So, I mean, 
once we saw all the work that went involved in us having a shower, because we were thrilled, like when I, at elk camp, I don't get a shower. I do the, yeah. what we were laughing about at SCI, the PTA baths, pits, tits, and ASS. Uh, yeah. But um, there we had, you know, right behind our tent, they had a little, little hut like built and with a flushing toilet and a little shower. And so I was just like in seventh heaven. But yeah, we made our showers really short once we realized the work that was going in for them to scoop that water, carry it, heat it, then put it back in buckets, carry it up the ladder, dump it in a tank. I mean, it was just crazy. But yeah, yeah. we take a lot for granted here. Yeah, that's for sure. We never, I never called it the PTA, uh, but I definitely, I mean, we just call it a whore bath is what, what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's very that, PC. That in 2023, <laughs> but that's what we call it anyway. So, uh, well, so, that work that works too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of work for someone to take a shower. Did that? But it's so. I mean, it's hot, and you're in hunting all day, and there's ticks, and you're getting bit by bugs. Uh, you want to take a shower? I don't know if it deterred you, or if you just took a, a shorter shower once you saw how. Much we took work a shorter when. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. I didn't skip because. After, I mean, I didn't get a morning shower. I didn't get like a morning wake up shower or mm -hmm. anything. I just, after the day's done, I got a quick shower to get the grime off. Um, right. But I didn't take long, you know, soothing ones or anything like that. I just got quick wins and got the nastiness off of me and, and headed to dinner. Yeah. Uh, so I, before I went on my first safari, I had this <clears throat> idea that we would be driving around in a Land Cruiser in an open plains, see something and shoot it. And to be honest, that didn't really appeal to me. Mm -hmm. And I, a buddy, uh, he had gone a couple times and he was like, you need to go, you know, introduce me to Carl over at John X Safari. So I ended up going, I've never shot an animal out of the vehicle. Like everything is on foot, lots of hours behind the glass. If you can get, if you can get gain elevation, um, it was, it was much more like traditional Western hunting, spot and stalk, glassing. So for me, like that was a pleasant surprise. It was probably why I'm about to go on trip number six, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you guys were expecting, but I had it all wrong as far as the style of hunting that I was getting myself into. Yeah, I don't, I think I kind of had that vision too, because like I said, I thought it was going to be like you see on TV, all the animals are just going to stand there and how difficult could it be? But mm. But also, it is illegal in Tanzania to shoot from a vehicle, so you do have to get off anyway. But but yeah, what we do, you might spot it from the vehicle, but then you hurry up and you hid the vehicle behind a termite mound or something, and then you get out and then you glass and try to see if it's pursuable and if it's an old male and all that kind of deal. But yeah, yeah. we, you're on the ground, and that was my favorite part watching those trackers work. Oh my gosh, you pray no too. They are just, they're just fascinating to watch and amazing with what they can do i mean i could watch them all day long i never cared if we got near the animal or not to be honest i could just follow them through the bush forever <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well and they tend to ride up in the back of the truck right and a lot of times you're sitting in most of the time you're sitting inside well we were just, outside oh you were okay. yeah their truck only had like room for driver and a game scout Okay. And then we were up in the bench seat. And so the tracker was actually, so I, there was, I was always in the middle. Raphael, the PH was on one side and Rick was on the other. And then the two trackers were like kind of standing right behind us. Uh -huh. So they, we were like right near each other, you know, and um, they we were, were so always looking for animals. I always just was waiting for this noise. 
and that would be the tracker banging on the on the on the roof of the truck saying i see something you know stop and let's mm-hmm. let's get out and let's see if we, what it is you know it could be mm-hmm. a mile away or it could be 500 yards away but we didn't you know we haven't seen it yet uh so that that's always that always gets your blood flowing um yeah i always say that Raphael can see it see a you can see a toothpick in a bell of hay and an, and hear an ant peeing on cotton i mean it was just <laughs> like yeah they're amazing I shot a Inyala, I think on my third, second or third trip, and we had seen the Inyala, and then it disappeared. And I'm talking about like rocks and dirt, and this tracker is just slowly making his way through. He's like, he went here, he went here, he went here. I mean, I ended up shooting the Inyala. I hadn't, I couldn't see what he, I couldn't even make out what he was looking at. Uh, I would, I would get. Art. I would get all excited, like, because sometimes they, we would actually think they were taking us on a wild goose chase. You know, we thought, hey, they could just be leading us in circles and we'd just be happy to be doing it, you know. But then you'd see like a hoof print or a partial one. And we'd be like, yes, we see it. You know, it was so cool to actually be able to see something when most of the time we weren't seeing anything that what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. So. so Tanzania is void of high fences, correct? Yeah, no, no high fences. So. That's a little different than South Africa and even uh, Namibia has, is kind of following in South Africa's footsteps on that as the, you know, whether you like it or not, the privatization of wildlife in those countries results in more wildlife. And that's just the reality. Um, the place that I hunt now is 30,000 acres. You see the fence when you go in and when you leave, that's pretty much it. And then I think I've killed 20, uh, 20 something species over there. And I did the math though. Uh, I think only 10 of them were in that 30,000 acres. The rest is all free range that oh, we have 5,000 acre ranch over here, or we're going to go to the mountains for uh, a clip springer on this 10,000 acres or whatever. So there's a mix of, it's not all, you know, I don't want people to think it's all high fence hunting in South Africa. Well, well, I know Tanzania is, there's no high fence hunting. Yeah, there's no fence hunting there, but still, I, I do want people to know that um, just because a property is fenced doesn't mean it's not a challenge. And you got to remember the size of these fences. I mean, sure, there might be some that are small that maybe you won't consider, you know, yeah. but just because something is fenced, it could be hundreds of thousands of acres or tens of thousands with all kinds of different terrain. So oh, it's yeah. just is challenging. I mean, 30,000 acres is a massive, massive place. <laughs> Especially when there's all these like dips, you know, all these different terrain in that same oh, 30,000. Huge, huge valleys with dense vegetation where you find kudu and bushbuck and eland. Then there's a completely different habitat. It's just up top is just the plains. And that's where you're going to see the blessed buck and the spring buck and the red hearted beast and some zebra. Uh, it's completely different and all exists right there on one property. It's pretty amazing. What doesn't sound amazing, however, is an unwanted aerial assailant that you constantly had to battle in the book, uh, something I've never dealt with in South Africa. We'll get into that next. And that segment was brought to you by the NUMA Pathfinder Pant. Uh, Whether you're in the South African savanna or in the Texas brush or the Idaho backcountry, doesn't matter. The Pathfinder Pant is my favorite hunting pant that I've ever owned. It is comfortable. It's got breathability and room in that most important crotch area. And here's the cool thing. It's guaranteed for life, as is all of NUMA's gear. And you'll save uh, 20% off with that promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at NUMAoutdoors.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. And all them pretty people 
Hey guys, Cable here for Armasite. If you're looking to light up the night, whether that's with thermal or night vision, then you need to head over to Armasite.com. That's where you can find all of the thermal and night vision monoculars, uh, thermal weapon sights, and of course, night vision nods. Yeah, those cool looking helmets, the one that I have. Yeah, buddy. You can find them over at Armasite.com. They've got it all right there. And even better than that, they've got some new stuff coming down the pike like the 640 contractor i've got the 320 640 even better you can find it all at armorsite.com i'm chris letzinger online sales manager at cinnamon creek ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club we're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges full pro shop and six different 3d courses cinnamon creek was designed by hunters for hunters Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Gable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Little Johnny Cooper, crazy, bringing us back here. Um, we're still visiting with Sue Tidwell, author of Cries of the Savannah. We'll jump back into that discussion momentarily. This segment is brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants. I told you guys last week, I put out the To Die For down in South Texas, 15,000 acre ranch while we're turkey hunting. These animals are not fed. There's no feeders. They're really not used to human anything. Um, and so I put out the to die for. We had free-ranging water buck, nilgai, white-tailed deer, hogs, turkey. I'm trying to think of anything else. Javelina. Everything came to that feed. It was something new, and it lured them all in. So I am a big fan of it. You can check out to die for at bigandj.com. That being said, uh, Sue, thanks for sticking around. One thing that, I mean, it made me cringe when I was reading it, but also kind of laugh at your expense. I've never had to deal with these little jerks in South Africa, but Tsetse flies were like a, an ongoing nemesis that you guys had to deal with. Oh, boy. Like, you don't even have to get vaccinate, like vaccinations to go to South Africa. I imagine you probably did to go to Tanzania. We got a lot of different shots. I can't remember what, but we did get a bunch. But none for, there is nothing for tsetse fly. Right. And luckily at the time, I really didn't know the disease they carried. But um, but anyway, <laughs> I don't want to scare people off anyway, because there's such a small chance of getting sleeping sickness. Mm-hmm. But they are miserable. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If you are in a tsetse fly free zone, they are miserable. They're, our game scout, Lillian, called them angry little devils. I called them miniature vampires with wings because they land on you and they suck the blood out of you and they will not die. I mean, you can hit them and hit them and they won't die. Our pH would try to grab them and he'd twist the head off. That was the only way to kill them. They're just, (laughs) they're nasty little buggers. And they would swarm and then it would last for like a few minutes and then be over. They were really weird. 
yeah, you would go to an area and all of a sudden there'd just be a bunch of them. And then you'd fight them for two or three minutes or five minutes or 10. And then, you know, you'd be clear again. And then you'd be like, oh, okay. And then you'd maybe good for half hour, 40 minutes. Then all of a sudden you'd hit another. There's no rhyme or re- I think there's supposed to be a rhyme or reason to it. But to us, it just seemed very random. So um, it just, they just came and go. But um, no but amount you know, of bug spray matters to these things. We had everything. We had nets, we had bug sprays, bracelets, um, you know, like teeth or um, bug repellent bracelets. Uh-huh essential oils, we had all kinds of stuff. But the only thing that worked was they had gifted me a Maasai blanket the first day. So I, I don't know why I took it with me that first day, but I did. But that thing, I would wrap it around me whenever the TT flies would hit because they couldn't penetrate all those layers. Mm. Um, they could they could penetrate just one or two layers, but not all those layers. And then plus the trackers would get, you know, branches and they'd hit, they'd be start hitting us to keep them <laughs> off of us so it was it was it was actually pretty comical you know but um but you know i have to say we have to thank tsetse flies because tsetse flies are the reason that large parts of africa are not um inhabited are yeah are not inhabited Mm -hmm. because horses and cows can't live work in a tsetse fly zones so and you know so people don't move into those areas but yeah so we have them to thank for large chunks of Africa being remote and wild still. That's cool. A little blessing in disguise. Uh, yeah, never, yeah. So I have never dealt with the tsetse flies, but I've done quite a few canoe trips in Canada to the boundary waters and without fail. And this is, you know, uh, July, August, maybe even into September. We think we've gone four or five times, but the mosquitoes right at sundown, they come out 30 minutes. You're just getting your ass chewed up. Uh, and and then and then they're gone, but it's uh it's relentless and like they're everywhere. It's I I just like well I'm just gonna go in the tent until this is over. <laughs> yes, pretty good idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know that's one thing. The tsetse flies are another reason why, you know, a lot of tourists um they don't want to go to these general tourists. You know, a lot of people say, why do you have to have hunting? when um, you could just have a general tourist. But general tourists don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. Right. For hunters, you know, let's face it, you guys are gluttons for punishment. So oh, yeah. you'll do anything to get to that animal or into that wild area. You'll you'll put up with any misery there is to have a chance at, at an animal. Where general tourists, they don't want those remote areas and that's secluded and, and you know, being attacked by tsetse flies. Uh-huh. And you you do talk about that in the book, and I think you I don't remember, but I think you even maybe broke down in dollars and cents the difference between the revenue generated from just four four American hunters, two hunters. I think your friend and your another couple that you knew was there with you, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember if his wife was hunting, but the two yeah, of them. She was. Okay, so three hunters, whatever, four Americans. That revenue generated compared to ecotourism or a photo safari? It was crazy. It's kind of different. The study I looked at, there's a, it varies from country to country. It sure. went from anywhere from nine times to 32 times as much money generated. But in some places, one study, 1,600 times, it takes 1,600 tourists to make up Oh gosh, I'm going to confuse you now. For one, it's either 1,600 tourists to make up for one hunter or 1,600 
times the money for one hunter. Oh gosh, I should know that. That's but, okay. I, but sorry about that. But anyway, it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. And, then and the you other gotta things, remember. Go ahead. Yeah, and the other thing is, um, way less stress on the environment because yes. hunters are willing to sleep in a little tent in the middle of nowhere. They stay at the same place pretty much the whole time. Tourists, general tourists, they jump around. They want clean hotels. They want air conditioning. They want poles with all water in a place that there's hardly any water. Um, so every time they jump around, new sheets have to be washed. I mean, there's just so much more wear and tear on the habitat when yeah. with non-hunting. I mean, I don't want to deter non-hunting tourists. I'm just saying you have to see that, that there's always two sides to every story. Oh, absolutely. It's, it is way more stressful on the habitat and environment. Uh, the water is a big, like you just said, a big component, uh, there. And then it also, you know, it concentrates the animals into smaller places. Uh, there is less water. We're having to wash all these sheets all the time, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now all the animals congregate at the same watering hole. Um, and that puts a stress on the environment because if you put unnatural water holes in, it just it just messes the whole thing out of whack because mm -hmm. certain animals need to be have areas that aren't near water that are don't get eaten down as much because areas near water, of course, get used more and get the vegetation gets eaten off of them. Yeah. So that's bad for other animals. But anyway, there's just all these things to it. But what was the wildlife like right there in camp? It was amazing. Um, we were right on the border of Oaxaca National Park. So um, the river, the dried up riverbed was actually the border. So anything on that side was, of course, off limits. You know, a lot of times, a couple of times we'd be tracking a buffalo and they disappear into the park and that's it. That's the end mm -hmm. of that hunt. But um, yeah, at night, we would hear lions and hyenas and hippo. There was a hippo pool. There was a little stagnant pool of water about 300 yards from us. So there was about 20 hippos still living in that. And you could hear the hippos. They roamed around. Um, we had burbot monkeys. They okay, were hippos all... kill more people than any oh, other yeah. animal in Africa. And they're 300 yards from where you're sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and so during the day, you didn't have to worry because hippos very rarely leave the water during the day. Uh -huh. But it was at night and evening where you had to, you know, we were just always had to be aware. They always told us the most dangerous place to be in Africa is between a hippo and the water. So never get between the hippo and the water. So you just had to leave their path open. Cause a lot of times it's not that they're really trying to, um, they're just trying to get to their safety zone right. and they are cranky and aggressive, especially if they have babies. But, but we, uh, one morning we, um, I have this in the book, but one morning I wake up and Rick is, um, whispering in my ear, honey, put your shoes on. You might have to run. Now, this is how you wake up in Africa. This is after lions are roaring all night, hyenas and all this thing. And I'm just like, I'm not a morning person anyway. I'm getting up and I'm just doing what he tells me. I'm putting on my tennis shoes and I'm thinking, he says, I said, why? You know, and he looks up right. There's a screen window in the tent, like literally less than a foot from the screen window was a mama hippo and the baby. And they were grazing right by our tent. Mm. But it was almost time for breakfast. And so, Rick, you know, you don't want to be late for safari. So instead of just waiting for this hippo to go, he wanted to turn the light on so we could get ready. So he's like saying, I don't know what's going to happen when we turn the light on. So um, get ready to run. Well, me like an idiot. <laughs> I, I'm not a morning person. I just did it. And I later I thought, what? 
how stupid was that? But anyway, we turned the light on and the hippo and the mother and the hippo and the baby ran towards the water. So we didn't get, you know, steamrolled or anything, but, you know, and we also weren't late for breakfast. So, you know, we weren't late for safari. So um, talk about the, the bush buck. Was that a species that you knew anything about, first of all, and, uh, and my history, that was like the one where it was on my list, the first safari. And I think I finally got one on the fourth trip because they're just so reclusive and, yeah. uh, they're and they're solitary. They, they don't, they're not a herding animal by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, did you even know what a bush buck was? I, I didn't know what, I had no clue what a bush, there were so many animals over there that I had never even heard of before, but no, bush buck was definitely one of the ones I'd never heard of, but we were blessed because there was right in front of the messy or the dining hut, there was a little water hole there too. So the animals would come in to drink and the bush buck would come in there one at a time. Like you said, they're loners and they're really mm-hmm. reclusive, but they'd come in and they'd drink and they'd take off. And we'd have that one that was injured really bad. It had a big gash on its side. But um, so they didn't stick around long, but I at least did get to watch them. And I even got a few pictures of them. Rick tried hunting them a couple of times. We went after them, um, you know, when we were out, but they're, you know, and of course he couldn't hunt the ones across the river. Right. And even though they, they felt bad for that one that was, had that big gash that probably wouldn't survive real long, but it was still, it's off limits because it was mm-hmm. in the park. So he never got one. No, he never got ah. one. Okay. No, he's got a water buck now, but not not a bush buck. Okay. Well, y'all better go back then. Uh, Oh, yeah, I'd love to. (laughs) uh Um, What about Joel? This guy, he's one of the dudes in camp, and I thought it was pretty funny. And it made me think about what we're seeing in American society with this whole transgender thing, because he's the oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. So I don't know how many wives his dad had, but if you told... And I've asked my tracker this. I, you know, what do you think of uh, of a of a man that says he's a woman? And he doesn't. He had to ask. He had to ask my pH and and Afrikaans. Can you say that again? And then he was just like, I don't. I don't understand. How do you make children to work in the fields if you if that's what you do? Like they, they, he couldn't even wrap his mind around it because yeah, children are a necessity in some of those tribes where if you don't have those hands in the field, the the family's struggling to survive. So as the head of the household, you know, the man, the more children you have, the more prosperous you were. And so Joel's family, his existence proves that this, this thing that we're experiencing in first world countries is completely made up. It's a, it's a joke, but this dude though, Joel, his oldest brother got killed by a snake. And then he was the oldest and he was mm-hmm. telling that story to you, oldest of 35. And this, this dude seemed like he had a pretty good sense of humor. Oh, he was amazing. I, that was my biggest regret about Africa is why didn't I tape it? But that back then was before we were taping things and video and everything. But, oh, if I could have retaped some, taped some of his conversations, oh, the, it was just priceless. But, but yeah, Joel, he, I was, like I said, scared to death of black mambas. They were like my, I mean, I was just petrified. And his recipe to help you cure that fear is, uh, let me tell you about my brother. Well, no, I specifically (laughs) asked him. It was my own fault because I was going around every, 
English speaking one person and saying just in casual conversation, like not all at once, but like as the day would go on, I'd say, well, do you know anybody that ever died of a black mom? And I was kept getting no's, you know, like, no, I don't know anyone personally. No, I don't know. Anyone. So then I got to Jewel like at lunch that day or well, it must have been. It's like that if night. you go looking for trouble, you're going to find it. <laughs> you're going to find it. <laughs> and so I just was casually saying, well, do you know anybody that's ever? Oh, yeah. My brother died in the in the um, herding goats when he was 10, killed by a black mamba. Now I'm the oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. So I'm in that one sentence, I learned that his brother died of a black mamba bite. And he was the 30, oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. So, and then he went on to explain it. And then I don't know if you remember, but um, he himself got um, attacked by a spitting cobra. Mm. So he um, was gathering firewood. So that came later in the story, you know, after I learned about his brother and the five wives and 35 siblings, then he continued, oh, yeah, I, I was gathering firewood and a spitting cobra got him in the eye. And luckily, they were near enough to a hospital. They were able to get, get him there within a few hours. And he said he lost his sight totally. Then it went to different like yellows and greens and all these different things. till he finally gained his eyesight back because he got treatment. But he said, oh, it hurt. It hurt bad. You know, yeah, he had such sure. a way of telling things. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yeah. So he didn't give me the warm, fuzzy feeling I was looking for. So when you embarked on this adventure... Did you go into it knowing that you were going to write a book? No, no, I didn't. Um, oh, my friends, I always sent these long adventure field Christmas letters to my friends, you know, since I'd lived in different areas. And they always told me I should write a book. But I was always like, ah, who wants to hear my adventures? But once I was in Africa, I don't know, Africa just changes you. And it speaks to your heart in a way that it's hard to describe to people. And I felt so moved by the experience and what I learned that um, I just felt I finally had a story that really people needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And I made a promise to Lillian before, you know, because we had a young female game scout who was um, 23 years old, spoke pretty good English, who taught me so much, you know, and she wasn't affiliated with the hunting party. So there's, you know, she's there separate from them. She just met them the same day we did. So but legally, um, she had to be there, right? She had to be there. The, the Tanzanian government requires a game scout to be with every hunting party to document and make sure everything's legal. And so, yeah, she's and they don't want them to know the outfitters for that specific reason. You know, they don't want them to be too cushy, cushy. So, um, yeah. So everything they had told me, you got to remember, is coming from, um, you know, they have they have. Um, what's it? Oh. Skin of the game. They have skin of the game. But she didn't. She was there specifically to protect the animals. But I learned so much from her. And by the end of the trip, I promised her that I would try to help people like me understand the importance of hunting in Africa. And I really didn't know what I was promising at the time. But that pledge evolved into Cries of the Savannah. Because I tried talking to people. I tried, I just wasn't reaching enough. So I ended up you know, and of course, I'd wrote my big venture field Christmas letter and um, somebody actually booked a trip to Africa after reading it. So oh. they're like, Sue, you need to put this in a book. So that's kind of where it started from. And I turned it into a book. And Lily, and luckily, now we can keep contact with um, through the Internet. So she read every chapter. She helped me with parts I forgot. And luckily, I took great notes. I recorded mm -hmm. everything as I was going. So, um, so you were just kind of journaling? Yeah, I was journaling and took down notes of every animal saw, every stock, everything. So I had all that down. And then Lillian has a mind like a still trap. So if I forgot the name of a river or if I forgot anything, 
I could just, you know, unless she was on patrol, if she's on patrol, she doesn't have internet, like on poaching patrol. Mm. But um, other than that, I could just get an answer from her, you know, of, of whatever it was I was needing to know. So yeah, it, was, it worked out great. So 452 pages later, <laughs> is this is your masterpiece here. It's an awesome read. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And just like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, from where you're, where you were mentally, what you thought about trophy hunting in Africa. So when you left Tanzania, uh, I think is, is beautifully depicted in the book. And that's why I would encourage both hunters and, and non-hunters to, I'm not saying anti-hunters are going to pick this up and be like, oh, you know, but, but non-hunters and folks who are like, yeah, well, I'm okay with that. You, you know, you shot a white tail on your deer lease or you went into the back country and shot an elk and, but you know, the hangups over these, uh, I'm going to call them the, the Disneyfication of wildlife, anthropomorphism, you know, uh, no, they're just, they're wild animals. It's just no, it's no different. They're just, and I shot a giraffe and the backlash that, you know, from that, I mean, lost a sponsor over it, but I, and I knew I was going to lose it. And I just said, you know what? I don't care because you're not going to mm-hmm. pick and choose conservation when it suits your bottom line. If it hurts my bottom line, fine, but I'm going to be transparent about what I'm doing because what I'm doing mm-hmm. is right and just, and there's more giraffe because they have a value. You want to go to see, you want to see less giraffe, go to Kenya where they, their wildlife has depleted 70% from where mm-hmm. it was in the seventies when they banned hunting. There's, there's I mean, no reason for people to protect them anymore other than mm-mm. on state. Okay. Here, and the parks are, yeah. the parks are a mess because they're um, not, there's no population control. They're destroying the habitat. I mean, yep. there's anyway. So Lillian's salary is probably paid for by hunting. Well, it's paid for by the Tanzanian government, but yeah, I'm sure that comes through hunting because well, you know they they get such a huge part of the yeah chunk yeah. So that's so. the that's the, that's. But she's not that she's not yeah she's not paid directly from the outfitter, but yeah she is you right. know they pay to the government so yeah so the outfitter and pays huge a lot amounts to a lot. the Tanzanian government yes. Hillary told me Hillary told me the actual actual amounts that they had to give to the government, and yeah. I was. I was dumbfounded. I mean, I didn't include that number in the book, but yeah, it's not a small little amount. Mm-hmm. And they also have to do projects for the people, like um, put a well in. They they also have to do community projects and stuff like that. Talk about poaching and its prevalence in the region that you were in. And also you mentioned, and I read about it in the book, but then you alluded to it earlier, that they have to tear camp down every every season. And I don't know if that's because it floods there. I mean, you're right by the river, which is pretty much dry, but... But, or if it's because of, hey, here's a place where us poachers can hang out. Yeah, they tore it down so that poachers wouldn't move in. They uh-huh. specifically tore everything down. They hauled all that stuff, the toilets, the solar power, the generator, all that stuff was hauled to Magogo's village, which is about mm-hmm. four hours away by truck, and they burned everything else. And then in the beginning, in the next spring, they had to rebuild it all. But yeah, because we were on the border of national of the national park, um, it was a perfect staging area for poachers if they if we had left it intact. I mean, of course, at the time it broke my heart. I had, that was my little Shangri La. You know, I fell in love with Masimba Camp. It crushed me that they were going to tear it down, but it was for the. But they assured me it'd be rebuilt every year. And the other thing that people don't realize, and I never realized this till then, but um, hunting concessions are positioned around national parks strategically as a buffer zone. So. You know, because 
hunting areas are full of game scouts, PHs, hunters. It's too dangerous for poachers to work there. I mean, it's just, it's not a smart move on their part. So they protect these national parks by these hunting zones. And also it leaves, you know, the, when the national parks get overflow in populations, they can, you know, overspill into the hunting areas. But, um, but yeah, it's a great deterrent for, um, and as the parks, like there's very little poaching in areas that have hunting compared to other areas. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just too dangerous for them. The thing I learned most about poaching that people might not really, this was one of my biggest hangups originally was, you know, lions and leopards are endangered. How can you justify hunting them, even a more mature male for conservation? You know, how can you justify that? But Lillian taught me that, you know, the biggest cause of death to carnivores is poisoning by villagers because they're worth nothing to, if they are worth nothing to them, they are just dangerous killers. Not only do they kill people, but livestock, which they depend on. And their societies are geared around that livestock. It's not like they just have an extra cow on the pasture. I mean, that's their livelihood. Yeah. So when they lose something like that, it's it's detrimental to whether they're going to be able to eat that year. Um, so poison is the cheapest way for villagers to kill something. So they would put poison in a carcass and it would kill every carnivore that ate it, including any subsequent ones, you know, that fed oh, yeah. on it. So it was just a, a gift that keeps taking and taking and taking basically. But um, yeah, I had never thought of that. I had never thought about the fact that it might not be great with this lion in your backyard. You know, I mean, just, I think it's been a year and a half now, but you might've heard this story, but those, Four boys were out looking for working with their cattle and they got attacked by lions and three of the boys were eating, eaten mm -hmm. um, while the one brother wa had to watch. So one brother escaped, got in a tree, but had to watch his brothers not just get killed, but but eaten by lions. Yeah. You know, that's so you have to give these people a reason to oh. want to live with these animals, you know, and I'm not even sure if in America we would any money amount would allow make us want to do that. But there, if the, you know, if it's going to make, if that, that line is worth $50,000 and it's going to give them water and it's going to give them, allow them education and medicine supplies and different things that they can come to their village. They're going to work harder to, to avoid the lions or to put their animals in bomas, which are fences, or they're going to work at the, safest time of the day they, they change their mm. tactics to try to live with these animals so well, it's not just the carnivores I, and I, I don't think tanzania has this problem but uh botswana certainly does they have an overpopulation of elephants they're elephants. biologists say that their carrying capacity is like seventy thousand for the entire country and they're at one hundred and forty thousand. so they're twice what the landscape can support well okay now you have elephants these massive beasts that have been displaced from ideal habitat onto farmland. And, do you, and not only do they have an uptick in human wildlife conflict with more elephants killing more people than at any time in modern history, but the elephants are trampling and eating their crops. So you think these farmers like, no, what these farmers want is for you or I to come over there and shoot, shoot them and give them some money in for doing that. You know, like, and, uh, yeah, and it, and it doesn't only and it doesn't only eat their crops. It it destroys their infrastructure. Say they have a little well there, they can come and destroy the whole 
village's water system yeah. in just a matter of minutes. I mean, but you're right. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because we you know it was banned for those two years. Poaching went up 600 percent after yeah. that ban because people didn't have a reason to turn poachers like, in. To, I'll tell you yes. where an elephant is. Go shoot that yeah, bastard. He's exactly. eat my crops again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel like it's modern day imperialism for American politicians to sit, you know, in their their glass houses and dictate to a third world country how they have to manage the wildlife, especially since we've given them the playbook. Hey, here's the North American model for conservation. It's through sustainable use hunting. Take this and use it. Okay, yeah, we're going to do that. We're doing it really well. Oh, wait. Uh, actually, we don't want you to do that anymore because it makes us feel bad for somebody to shoot uh, an elephant or a giraffe or, you know, pick the species. It doesn't matter. It, it's it's so hypocritical because, like I said, we do it here, um, right. you know, and then they try to blame it on, like, for instance, giraffes are trying to get, or, well, now hippos are working on getting hippos um, on the endangered species list. Mm. But what you got to remember, every area is so different. Africa is huge. Mm-hmm. You've got to go by area by area. You can't say every giraffe is protected because in South Africa, they're doing wonderful with giraffes. In Namibia, they're doing wonderful with giraffes. Now, areas that don't have hunting, yeah, they're not doing so good with giraffes. Right. So you can't just put blanket statements over everything. It just doesn't, it doesn't work in a continent that size. The analogy that I always use so that people can understand it here is take the Florida panther in the Everglades. Okay, well, that's just a mountain lion that lives in Florida. Is it endangered in Florida? Yeah, it is. We probably shouldn't hunt it there. Does that mean we shouldn't kill them in Colorado or Idaho or Montana? Absolutely not. That's exactly what you just said, but but Mm -hmm. like on in North America. On our terms, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're going to take our last break. When we come back, we'll get into one of the animals Rick hunted that is at the top of my absolute bucket list. Numero uno. We'll discuss next. That segment... Brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with locations in Marion and San Antonio, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for over a decade. I trust them like I trust my best friend. They are honest. They do amazing work. They answer the phone when I call. And you can find their website at gr8mounts.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. If you wonder where my heart is when I'm out on the road. you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near dfw then three curl outfitters has you covered offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of dallas guide scout daily to put you on the bacon using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders crop fields and river bottoms you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees visit www.3curl.com also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940 in the market for a compact track loader check out the bobcat advantage where bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat Compact Track Loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com 
or call 469-586-0000 today. Land is the one thing they're not making any more of, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. If you're ready to take that next step and make the dream of owning your own land reality, then head over to LoneStarAgCredit.com. Ducks Unlimited invites you to the third annual Ducks Unlimited Expo presented by Purina Pro Plan at Texas Motor Speedway, May 5th through 7th. Watch the premier canine performance athletes of the dog world competing in the incredible dog challenge. Test drive a new ATV or visit the live fire shooting ranges. DUX, the show for everything outdoors. To learn more, visit duckexpo.com. Even fools can see when all the chips are down. But when you're next to me, my world keeps spinning round. So what am I? What am I supposed to do? Right, Cable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Uh, we're going to wrap things up with Sue Tidwell, author of Cries of the Savannah, here in just a second. Uh, got some big five stuff to get into, but first, this segment brought to you by Vortex Optics. You know, the best things in life are often free, and that includes Vortex Nation. With one click, you can join thousands of hunting, shooting, and outdoor fanatics brought together by a shared passion for chasing life's wild moments. Start your adventure today by signing up for the Vortex Nation newsletter by going over to join.vtxnation.com to sign up. It's free, of course. Okay, well, let's pick it back up here with our friend Sue Tidwell. Some of the the, the species that uh, Rick hunted, buffalo, I've taken a Cape buffalo. That was super cool. I think he actually shot two. Um, that was awesome reading about that. And and go back to those books that you were talking about <laughs> that you don't want, you do want to read before you get <laughs> Uh, yeah. Some of the buffalo tails in there are uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and terrifying. Then, oh, equally, yeah. Uh, and then I think the one that I do want you to just spend a few minutes talking about. I think this was his childhood dream. And if money wasn't an object, if you said cable, what is at the top of your bucket list? It would be a leopard for me personally. Uh, and I think that was at the top of his. Well. If we had had the money, he would have actually loved to get a lion. That right. would be, and he would love to get an elephant. But um, the leopard was more or less, it's a less expensive, you know, that was more or less his, our compromise. You know what I mean? Mm. So um, yeah, we just couldn't afford that at the time. But It's uh, still an expensive compromise. It's, it's still, it, well, it was, especially in Tanzania and things have gone yeah. crazy even since we were there. I but, looked at um, leopard hunts in, at the uh, SEI show. There, there wasn't one available for less than $35,000. Yeah, they're yeah, maybe someday, someday, probably not though, but I'll keep dreaming. Yeah, like I said, we were supposed to go only once, so we we had a couple rental homes in Boise and we sold the rental homes and took the profit, you know what Uh, I mean? It was just, yeah, we've just made it happen, you know. So, um, my my brother had died, and so we realized you can't just put things off, Mm -hmm. so that kind of kicks kicked us into gear, so to speak, but anyway. But yeah, so I we'll talk about the one. leopard hunt, though. Okay. Okay, go I, ahead. I think you guys moved to a completely different camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had tried around the main camp, the Simba camp, for a few days, and just the big leopards weren't hitting the bait or anything. So we moved to Chewy Camp, which is, you know, leopard in Swahili. And uh, it was on a di- the same river, but on a different whole area, about four hours away. And uh, 
Yeah, he sat in a blind, I think, oh, I haven't, a, a total of 20 some hours, like without flinching over about five days, I think. Mm. Um, and it was just, that's the only thing I didn't do with him because there is no way I could sit that still for that long. And um, plus Rick was a little worried about me having the danger part of having me there and having to worry about me. Mm. And, but, but really more than anything, there's no way I could, you know, my bladder would have held out, <laughs> let alone mm-hmm. not flinching at a tsetse fly. So I, I didn't, I stayed at camp when he did those hunts. But he eventually, he got the leopard. He, he did get the leopard. Big, it took Big long celebration to- in camp. Yes, it was. You know, there's something so moving about the celebrations, you know, the, the chants and the dancing and the singing. And, you know, Kayumba would, you know, say the words and then everybody would repeat it back and then that clap. And, and it was just, I can't even, it's just such an emotional thing um, to be a part of that celebration and part of that culture, even for a few minutes. Um, yeah, it was really, really amazing to be a part of that. Well, they say there's two things about leopard hunting that I do know to be true, not having done it, but uh, my PH always tells me, because he's like, he knows I want to do it, but then I start looking at the prices and he's like, I'm like, no, there's just no way. And he goes, well, let me tell you this. The first thing about leopard hunting is is, uh, the most expensive leopard hunt you book is the one you have to do twice. So go with a reputable, don't just find a deal and be like, I'm going to go on a leopard hunt. Like, because you might give, you probably have to pay for two leopard hunts. And then the other thing is like, most of them say 21 days. That's what they want you to block off on your calendar if you're serious about taking a mature Tom. Um, Mm -hmm. How long were you guys there? We were there 21 days. We did the 21 and the people we were with, Rod, they had done that. They had gone on a hunt before, I think, Verline and didn't get it. So they had spent Mm -hmm. all that money and didn't get it. So um, yeah, you're right. It's good to pick a good reputable. And even then it's still hunting. So you just never know. Sure. But, um, but yeah, you want to definitely allot the right amount of time. So you have plenty of opportunity because you just, you just never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the one that they ended up getting was so smart. They would be sitting on the ground line. And he said, he said, it wasn't like we could even hear it, but you're just, your hair would stand on end. They could just, they just knew he was there, mm-hmm. but he never went near the bait. They could, he was walking like behind them. And they'd see the tracks later, but they finally had to build the machine in the um, trees, like 20 foot high in the trees. And that was an experience of self watching that, watching them build that because I I got to be there for that. But um, that's how they finally got them. They were up in the tree and, um, you know, he finally let his guard down just long enough. So anyway. So what there was one other thing you wanted to mention. uh, Oh, I just, you know, we, we talked about you talked about trophy hunting. A little bit, you know, and I hate that word. Um, well, it's because they've made it into something. They made it so nasty, yeah. Which and it isn't traditionally. No. It's, and it I just want people uh, to know that every bit of meat over there gets eaten. Even mm-hmm. us, who are four hours from the nearest camp or village, um, we couldn't take it to village like a lot of places do. But they hung it to dry in strips and dried meat to take for later, mm-hmm. you know, and then. I'm telling you, I know a lot of hunters say, well, I'm not hunting anything I can, can't eat, which I respect that. But in Africa, there is a feeling when you provide food for people who are protein deprived, you know, later we went to Mozambique and Rick shot a management hippo. Not that he didn't get to bring anything home. He shot it just for the people. That was the most, one of the most rewarding experiences to see 
what that protein means to people who don't get a lot of protein. I mean, there is nothing more. I know it's rewarding to kill your own meat and eat it for yourself, but it's even more rewarding, I think, to kill it knowing it's going to people who really, really appreciate it and need it. So anyway, that's what I wanted to say about trophy hunting. <laughs> well, and I'll say this, and it, it, and it transcends just my normal weekend during football season because my, most of my family doesn't hunt, but they all like to come over and watch the cowboy game and see what interesting wild game Cable's cooking up. And they appreciate that. And they're grateful for those experiences. Um, and, and then one other anecdote, I shot the Cape Buffalo in South Africa and we took half of it to the local school, which was the school was built with hundred dollars. The well was put in with hundred dollars. The soccer field was bulldozed and maintained with hundred dollars and the protein that these kids ate. And I'm not, Sue, when I tell you that the teachers and the students alike sang and danced when we presented them with the meat. I'm not lying. It was, yeah, it was emotional. I'm not going to say I cried, but you know, I was just like, wow, this is, this is really what it's it's all about. It just, it touches you in your heart in a way that you, it's hard to put into words because, Mm -hmm. um, we, most of us here in America just don't experience that kind of, um, well, we're spoiled. What's the word? Yeah, mean, we we're don't... spoiled. You know, we we don't go hungry. My, I mean, I'm not. No. I'm not trying to say no one here in America goes hungry, but for the most part, most of us don't. And and I'm not even saying they go hungry, but they um they don't get a lot of protein. You yeah. know, and so it's yeah, it's the word I would experience. use to describe it is it's validating to if you want a trophy hunt, which I, I'm not shy. I, I trophy hunt. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but you present the meat to a school or to your tracker's family or whatever. And that's validation that you know what you're doing has value. And, uh, in my tracker one time I shot a fallow deer, which is not native to Africa. They were introduced by the British in the 1800s because the British, the snobs that they are, turn their nose up at the native wild game. They're like, no, nah, we don't want to eat kudu. We want to have some fallow deer. So they released these fallow deer. Now they're all over South Africa's Eastern Cape, free range. We're, we're hunting them, shoot it. And typically like we're going to gut it and put it on meat poles and hike back to the truck, which was like a mile away. Well, my tracker was like, he said something to my pH and he's like, no, he wants to carry it out whole. And I'm like, why? Because he wants the cull fat, like the stomach lining. He wants to make a meal with that. That guy carried the damn 200 pound fallow deer on his back for like two miles. And and then it was sad because he hung it up and the camp dogs ate it after all that work. <laughs> oh no! Oh yeah. no! Yeah, but oh. I, yeah. Yeah, they That's don't waste how... nothing. Mm-mm. They eat all our just stomach linings. Yeah. Like we would go over at night and they'd have be cooking a tripe from the animals, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we we didn't eat that, but um, they ate that. So yeah. yeah, nothing goes to waste over there. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, well, y'all check it out. Cries of the Savannah. I enjoyed the read, Sue. It was great meeting you in nashville nice meeting you too yeah i don't know if you're and gonna thanks for having me on here you're gonna write another book but if you do i'd love to read that one as well this was a okay. great read, well so. um i'm gonna start on one for uh from namibia i think rick did another cape buffalo hunt but um but before that just so you know i'm also doing this in audio so in okay. a month or two this will be available available in audio for whoever is not a reader but um 
and it's going to have the sounds of the savannah. Like I'm putting the grunts of the lions and the hippos oh, cool. and everything in the book. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's really hard. I'm narrating myself and editing it myself. And I did hire a girl from Namibia to kind of help the final mm-hmm. touches. But um, anyway, yeah, so I'm excited about it. But it's way harder than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Well, great stuff. I appreciate it. And uh, do you have any, uh, what are your social media outlets? Um, Sue Tidwell, dot writer, Sue Tidwell. I mean, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, a um, little bit on TikTok, and, um, but mainly Facebook and Instagram. But yeah, I you're on, you're on Sue TikTok with all, the, with all the millennials. Yeah, I don't do Wait, that. Wait, no, that, what's I the group like, that's younger than them? That's who's on TikTok. It's uh, like Gen I finally, Z. Or I, I, I resisted and resisted and resisted. But you hear so much from book people saying it's such a great place for books. So mm. I, I've got less, like, I think I've got finally reached 100 followers on TikTok. So my they're just not doing anything over there. But I do like the videos that you can create there. So then I make them there and then I can use them other places. So oh, I do right like on. that part of it. Yeah. So I keep using it. But yeah, I don't have much of a... You have a hundred more followers than I do or ever will, but, uh, (laughs) yeah. All right. Well, Sue, thank you so much. I enjoyed the book. Thank you so much, Cable. I'm glad you enjoyed the book and thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. It was my pleasure. There she goes. Sue Tidwell, Cries of the Savannah. I really enjoyed visiting with her. Hope you guys equally enjoyed the conversation. I think it's important to understand where non-hunters, not anti-hunters, but where non-hunters fit into the grand scheme of things. And like we said, there's so many people in this country, in North America, uh, alone who are totally fine with deer hunting or duck hunting. or I mean, you name it, but then you say, oh, well, I'm going to go bear hunting. And then they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Or uh, I'm going to go shoot a zebra. And they're like, absolutely not. Why would you do that? God forbid a lion or something. I mean, geez. Uh, So for her to go there with that preconceived ideology and then you get there and it's like, wow, the scales just are removed from her eyeballs. And I think if more people were open-minded, we'd make some headway here as a hunting community. And I hope that her book does just that. And that's why she wrote it, like she said. Uh, So great stuff there with Sue. Thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Uh, That segment proudly brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the MC2 SC Everyday Carry double stacked 9mm pistol uh, compatible with Glock magazines by the way absolutely love it keep it on me or in the truck at all times it's the MC2 SC 9mm handgun you can find it at Mossberg.com Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Sue. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Where the dog will fly.